Weren't those baptisms absolutely just amazing? And the stories that these young, I uh, won't call them kids, these young people uh, shared, just so powerful. Well, if you're new, my name's Charles. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks so much for being here. You probably heard the phrase, time flies. Well, uh, when you get older, time seems to go quicker. I'm, I'm 67, which means I qualify for the senior discount. Well, let me tell you, when I turned 65, I would not take the senior discount because I was not going to admit that I was 65. Well, uh, yesterday, my wife is still in Mississippi. She's recovering from uh, uh, her uh, shoulder injury. But Tiffany, my daughter and I, we decided to go to the Mandarin a couple of days ago for the buffet. So I went online and I was looking and you're like, 20% senior discount. <laughs> I took it. Who would not? So, so I've got this idea and I just want you to kind of give me some feedback, you know, to kind of get over that, you know, Charles, get up, you're 65, the way it is. I'm thinking about making me like a lanyard and it says, I'm over 65. So when I go into a store, I won't be uncomfortable. I can say, oh, you're over 65. You don't look like it, but we do offer discounts. So I just want to know who, who thinks that's a good idea. Raise your hand if you think it's a good idea. Okay, well, that's about 30 of you, so. You know, when you make a commitment, we're getting the message now, when you make a commitment to any organization, get a new job, join a team, there are certain expectations, right? If you get a new job, there are certain things your boss expects of you, like show up at 8 o'clock, or if you're online, uh, if you're remote, you know, get, log in at 8, uh, do what the boss says, you know, bring a good attitude, encourage other employees. It just makes sense. Likewise, if you join a team, you are expected to do certain things, a sports team. Now, I wasn't a very good athlete when I was a kid, but I could run pretty fast. And so I joined the track team at Burkmore High School. This is an old picture here of Burkmore High School in Lilburn, Georgia. And I, I guess that's me. Anyway, I, I ran the mile. Coach Hunt was our coach. He was a delightful man. On the gas station, he also was a teacher and a coach. And he expected some things of us, like every day be at practice, be at the bus on time when you went to a meet, um, wear your stinky uh, short, I mean, clean your stinky shorts and your shirt before a meet and, you know, in, just in general, encourage the other uh, teammates. So it makes sense that if you're going to be on a sports team, it's not just that you say you're on the Burkmore High School track team that makes you a member of that team. It's, some, it's that what you do indicates you're really on the team. It's just common sense. Well, we're continuing our series today on Ephesians, and then Paul does that same thing. The Apostle Paul begins to describe what it really means to be on Jesus' team, to be a true follower of Jesus. And what he's doing is, if you've been with us, we've been kind of in the theological section. The first three chapters of Ephesians talk about the, the theology, the, the doctrine of being in Christ, being a follower of Jesus. So what the Apostle Paul does now, he pivots from the doctrine, he pivots to the application. Like, how do you put into effect all of these truths of being in Christ? In other words, what does it look like if you're really on Jesus' team? So he writes these words. 
Very first verse of when he makes this pivot. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So just as intuitively we know that if we're going to join a sports team or get a new job, certain expectations are just naturally to be expected, the same is true at a deeper level when you come to faith in Christ. So what, Jesus, what, what Paul is saying here, rather, is that when you join his team, we're committing to living out certain beliefs and behaviors, attitudes and actions. In other words, our profession will match our living. That's this whole living, this life worthy of the calling. See, a, a life well lived in Christ is one that's flourishing. It's, it's a vibrant life. It's a, it's a genuine life that suits and fits our calling that he talks about right here. And so now Paul is going to describe for us what this calling looks like, how we flesh it out, and then he's going to urge us to live in such a way. So here's today's big idea. This is the title of my talk today, A Life Well Led. And here's the big idea. The Apostle Paul gives us seven qualities that indicate, that tell us that we are living a life well. Now, I'm going to ask you to do some self-evaluation. From time to time in my message, kind of the application is for you to evaluate yourself. A few weeks ago in our study on, on Revelation, we used emojis, an emoji scale to evaluate. We're going to do that again today. As we go through the passage, we're going to understand what he means. Here, we're going to pull out that application, these seven qualities of a life well lived that we're really on the team. And so I'm going to ask you, when we get to that point, you're going to ask yourself, okay, how would I self-evaluate myself with very poor, poor, average, good, or excellent. So that's where we're going today. And here is the passage, again, those seven qualities. Here's the passage, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, get your Bible or your Bible app, I'm going to read it. And so if you would stand as I read this scripture. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. So he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, that's he's talking to believers, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Then he begins to delineate some of these specifics. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. But to each one of us, that's a Christian, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and these next few verses are a little puzzling. I'll try to explain them in a minute. When he ascended on high, he led his captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now that's a mouthful, but I'll try to explain that in a minute. Then he says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers 
to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, you can have a seat now. All right, let's see if we can kind of understand what Paul is saying in this really, really important chapter. He begins in verse 1 as a prisoner. Remember, he was in prison when he wrote this letter, prison in Rome. I urge you to live that life worthy of the calling you have received. So he's saying that our calling, coming to faith, responding to that call, should result in a certain kind of purposeful living, a life well lived, a life where belief and behavior and your talk and your walk and your practice matches what you profess. There should be an obvious distinctiveness about a follower of Jesus Christ, both in public and in private. And when he uses the word here, worthy, it's the idea of giving equal weight to something, which means that a believer should live a life equal to the amazing blessings of being in Christ that he's already talked about in the first three chapters. Now, Paul is not laying down the law here, you know, with these heart, with any kind of harsh command. Rather, he's describing it as what? As a call. He's, he's using a softer word here to persuade us to act freely as, as we should. Now think about it. If someone shares with you about some interest they have or what they do in their, as their vocation, they say, it's a calling. What does that say to you? It means it's something that comes from deep within, that it's genuine. It's something that permeates their life. So now Paul kind of unpacks and is a little more specific on some of these things. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Now, in the Greek world, humility was not a virtue. It was actually the opposite in the Greek world. It was a derogatory term to describe a, a, a groveling uh, a slave, a cowering, cringing one. It was not a virtue at all, but rather something despised. Something the Romans didn't want to have anything to do with. But when Jesus came, he redeemed that whole idea. And, and it was a contrast, as Paul is using this word here, a contrast to the proud elite of the day. It came to mean a true estimate of yourself. Truly seeing yourself as you really are in God's eyes. Not an overestimation, not an underestimation, but it really implies an awareness that of our absolute dependence on God. Corey mentioned this in his, his uh, reading this prayer. God is the creator and we are the created. Now going back to kind of Greek culture, Aristotle, which you know we learned about in school, he defined every virtue as middle ground, kind of right in the middle between two extremes. So he would define gentle as a middle place between being too angry and never being angry. 
So one way to look at this is the idea of being rightly stirred for true unrighteousness or wrongs, a righteous indignation at sin and injustice. So to be gentle from Aristotle's perspective would be to be angry at the right time and not angry at the wrong time. Another way to look at that is how the word was also used for an animal that has been trained. Uh, one of Tiffany's best friends, Sarah, Sarah, where are you, Sarah? She's, where's Sarah? There she is, yeah. She's a horse trainer. I mean, she knows like everything about horses. Horses and knitting. She's a master at knitting. I don't know anything about horses, except they go when I'm around them, which I assume they don't like me or something like that. Anyway, a horse that is broken still has power. That horse is strong, but it's under control. He's meek, but not weak. In fact, the word, this word, the word humility, the idea of humility and meek was used of Jesus himself. Jesus was fully God. He had full power, but he had his power under control. Then Paul talks about the word patience. You know what patience really means? It means having a slow fuse. When I was a kid, I loved fireworks. Anybody love, when they were a kid love fireworks? I loved them. Inevitably, you know, this is the day when cherry bombs were, were legal. Or anybody, anybody know what a cherry bomb is? A cherry bomb? Anybody? Oh yeah, they, they blow up stuff really, really good. Now you want to make sure cherry bomb does not have a short fuse. Because if it does, you're in big trouble. Now the little small firecracker, short fuse, no big deal. So we understand what it means to be short fuse. This is the opposite of having a short fuse. It's a long fuse. It's a reluctance to avenge wrongs or get easily provoked. It's the ability to overlook the irritable habits of people around us, even bearing insult without getting bitter. Now, in our North American culture, this, this is the opposite of what we want. We want speed. Speed is king. Faster speed on the freeways, faster internet, faster everything. Now, I, I, although COVID has just, you know, hurt us in so many ways, one of the benefits I see, have seen, is it actually has kind of slowed us down a little bit. It slowed, it slowed us down and made us step back and pause and, and reflect. So to be patient really means to be long-tempered. Then he says, bearing with one another in love. Now Paul was a realist. He understood that in the church, every Christian is not going to just love to be around the other Christian. Sometimes it's like mixing oil and water. You know, two Christians, they, they just are different. And you don't, you're not going to take a vacation with every Christian you know, Right? Some you might, but some, some you want. So what he's saying here, and he's not being idealistic. He's not speaking of a kind of love that's a warm, fuzzy one. But rather, this kind of love is a willful choice uh, to sometimes tolerate others, but always to love them with the right attitude and right behavior. And when he uses the word bear here, it's the idea of uh, although we may have the power to take revenge, we don't. We refuse to retaliate. Then he says, make every, he uses a qualifier word, every effort to do what? Keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So he qualifies this thing of unity with the word every, which, you know, amplifies how important this really is. Now he says to keep the unity. What does he mean here? Well, the spirit of Christ has already created this new unity. This new spiritual race for every person who's a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has already provided this unity and the potential for us to actually experience it. 
And believers, you and me if you're a follower of Jesus, has a responsibility for maintaining unity and for fostering unity. That's why he says make every effort to do it. In other words, he says do your best to help foster unity in the church. Which means to give intentional, determined effort to keep unity. I think the clearest way to describe unity is not necessarily a well-parsed-out definition of it, but maybe to describe what unity is not. So let me explain a bit what unity is not. Unity does not mean uniformity. We're all unique. We all have different preferences. We all have different uh, demographic background, different ethnicities. Does not mean uniformity. Nor does it mean that we compromise scripture to keep unity. Nor does it mean that we avoid conflict at all costs. Sometimes we have to enter into conflict because it's the right thing to do. It does not mean that we agree on every minute detail on the gray areas of the Bible or how a church is organized or the end times. It does not mean that. Rather, unity is really seen when believers live out all these other qualities. That is what, how you would define unity when you see these qualities lived out. When we embody them. Now, in the next verse, he mentions one word, one, the word one, seven times. Now, when, when you're reading scripture and you see a word repeated, I don't mean a and or the, but you see a word repeated real close together, boy, it's, you need to really pay attention. Using this word one so many times really gives us a theological and practical basis for this thing called unity. It adds weight. So here's what he says. There is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he uses the word one seven times, which is really pretty important. So what he's saying here is that the unity in the Trinity that we see anchors the basis for all of our unity. He writes here, the eternal nature of this unity fostered by God. Our one hope is our common goal to honor God. Our one body in Christ means that in Christ we're one, yet there are all these little multiple mini expressions called local churches around the world. Our one faith is that we're bound together by our common commitment to surrender to Jesus. Our one baptism speaks of just what we saw this morning. When a person comes to faith, one of the first things they ought to do is be baptized. Because here's what it does. When we are baptized, and Neil already explained, going under the water represents our life before Christ coming up, represents our new life in Christ. It also says when we're baptized, we're publicly going on record that I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm one of you. I'm not ashamed to say I'm one of you. Which begs the question... If you have not taken that step of baptism, why not? If you've come to faith in Jesus, and Jesus told us to, he uh, modeled it, there's something else going on there. So I really want to encourage you, if you've not taken that step of being baptism that kind of says to the whole world, I'm one of his, and I'm also one of you. I'm not ashamed to be called his. I'm not ashamed to be one of you. Email us. We'll get you in the next class. Now it goes on to say, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now this is not salvation type of grace. This is grace for serving. 
And he says here, when he says to each one, he means that God has gifted every single one of you for service. You and you, you and you and you and you. And me, every single one of us. It's not reserved for some professional paid staff like me. It's for every follower of Jesus. Just because you don't have a public role like I have does not mean you don't have a vital place in the church. Then he next writes something really puzzling. I said it was puzzling a while ago when I read the scripture. He talks about ascending on high and leading captives and giving gifts. Now what does ascended mean? Did he also descend into lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended. Like, what is he saying there? Well, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but the scholars generally believe this alludes to Jesus in his pre-incarnate state and the incarnation. When he descended, he became man. When he ascended, he rose from the dead and he went to, to heaven. And then when he says here, gifts... Context helps here. In Roman days, a conquering king, when he conquered uh, his enemy, he would give gifts to his members of his party. So Jesus, as our conquering king over the evil one, gives, has given gifts to each of us. Those gifts are gifts so that we might serve. They're, they're, these, they're grace gifts for serving. People have different responsibilities and different influence and different roles. Now, some are given more responsibilities than others. Yet everybody has a role. Now, within the, the giving of spiritual gifts, there seems to be a class or category of gifts that speak of the overall leadership in teaching and direction of the church. And this is what he says in the next verse. He says, it was, some who gave, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. Now, what is he really saying there? Well, these apostles and prophets were, were New Testament uh, leaders. A little context helps here as well. There's a difference between certain offices that were active in the early days of Christianity and ministry today. In the early church, an apostle was someone who had seen the resurrected Jesus. And what, that was one of the qualifications to be an apostle. They were responsible for really the whole church, kind of like a Peter or kind of like a Paul. Those guys are gone today, right? Today, the ministry of apostleship might be seen in a person who's like coordinating a, a movement of many churches or, or a large group of pastors or a Christian organization or denomination. We have some key people in our church that are heads or CEOs of Christian organizations. They might be considered an, an apostle. Well, I think I met one uh, when I uh, served in Chicago. Our, our church had a ministry to Nicaragua and we, we had like over 100 people uh, that went on trips there. And I met this gal, my first trip out there, I met this woman, here's a picture of her, Maria Magdalena Zeos. She was a woman pastor, yep, a woman. She was a woman pastor who started a church in the dump just outside Managua. I mean, this, this, the, the conditions of the people who lived off the dump. She saw these conditions. She owned a little shop in the marketing. She saw on TV one day the pitiful condition of these people. And she went there. She walked there. For years, she walked back and forth. She found a stump 
And she invited a few kids to hear about the gospel. She started a church, started many churches, and now she is responsible for ministering to and leading a large number of pastors in that area. I think she was probably, probably you would call a modern day apostle. Now, he goes on to say, Put that up there again. He, up there again. He says, talks about prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, a prophet was one who foretold the future. One of the keys about a real prophet was you were never wrong. Now, the priests would teach the people about God, but what, what happened? They would, their hearts would harden. Therefore, the people would, hearts would harden. And these prophets would uh, speak truth to help them reorient their lives back to God. They were also a type of a prophet in the New Testament. They went, went from village to village and house to house. But these guys are gone, okay? Today, someone who might have a prophetic ministry would be someone who can take God's word and can teach it and preach it so incisively that people fall under conviction and their lives are reoriented back to God. You might say a modern-day prophet would be something that's, uh, someone who's not foretelling, but rather forth-telling. Then he talks about pastors and teachers here. Now, unlike the apostles and prophets that were wanderers from village to village, these guys weren't. They were kind of more like assigned to a, a, specific, a specific church. Now, because in those days, books were so rare, people couldn't read much, and the books that were available were so expensive, the teacher, who maybe had access to some of those books, would teach the people uh, uh, through the spoken word. So, the pastoral role... Uh, in addition to the teachers, was to make, also to make sure the people's needs weren't met in those local churches. This is my role. My job and our pastor's job in our church here is to teach and to train West Parkers uh, to do the work of the ministry, to prepare God's people for works of service, to help you live out your calling in a worthy way. So overall, these gift categories could be seen as maybe foundational gifts or even offices that God used then and then God also uses now. Now, this word's interesting. This word prepared. It's actually a medical term. You, you guys are, uh, and gals who are in the medical field, this is probably interesting to you. It's the word for setting a bone or setting a joint that was kind of out of joint or even mending nets. So it was the idea of bringing a person or bringing that thing back to what it was uh, ought, ought to be. That's my role to educate and guide and lead to set in order the outworking of our faith in this local expression of God's church called West Park. At the same time, every believer in the local church is to what? Do the work of service, the work of the ministry, which means that if I'm doing my job like I should, our pastors are doing our job like we should as we teach and equip, it means there must be a quality seen in the receiving end, that is good followers are good learners. So the result is when leaders are leading well and teachers are teaching well and those who are serving are following well and learning well, this also happens. You won't be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. He's, what he's saying is as we do our job well, as our, those who we teach and we equip and we train and we lead follow well, we have a stable church 
it grows, and the body is protected from false teachers. And then the final part when this happens is, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and built itself up in love as what happens. Each part does its work. So, a worthy Christian life, a life lived well, as every part does its work, a healthy church is built up. It is unified and mature and not swayed by false teaching. Let's go back to our big idea again. A life well lived. Seven of these qualities that indicate that like, hey, we're really on the team. We really are by our attitude and our belief and behavior. We really are followers of Jesus. So I'm going to give these to you one at a time. And I'm going to ask you to mentally evaluate where you'd place yourself on that little emoji scale. Okay? Here's the first one. I have a healthy self-concept. This is humility. Now, actually, we, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we saw this come up again, surface again. And when the Bible repeats something, you need to really pay attention. What this means is that you're not proud. You're not arrogant. You're not haughty. You don't show false humility. Neither is it self-deprecation or coming down on yourself or being a passive doormat or groveling. Humility really means seeing yourself as God sees you, not how others see you, and sometimes not even what you say about your, yourself. So, evaluate yourself. The very poor, poor, average, good, or excellent. Take a moment, think about that. Here's a second one. In stressful circumstances, my responses are measured. That's the idea of gentle. In other words, I think before I speak. I measure my responses in these stressful situations. I don't react. So evaluate yourself. Very poor, poor, average, good, or excellent. Take a couple of seconds there. There's a third one. I usually have a long fuse. Patient. In other words, you can put up with other people who irritate you, who bug you, who frustrate you, who rob you the wrong way. And even though they act that way, you still treat them with respect and kindness and graciousness. In other words, you have a long fuse versus a short fuse. Evaluate yourself. Very poor, poor, average, good, or excellent. Here's the fourth one. In conflict, I respond rather than retaliate. This is this bearing with each other. Now, let me just give a little footnote on retaliation. Sometimes we think retaliate is like we just blow up right there and we, you know, we punch somebody out. No, that's retaliation. That's usually not the way we retaliate. We can retaliate in a very subtle way. We can cut somebody off. We can wish ill will upon them. We can close down to them. We can plot how to retaliate later. We can take great glee when something bad happens to them. It's a German concept called schadenfreude. Whatever behavior like this that we choose when we retaliate, what we're really doing is we're making the other person pay. So in conflict, I respond rather than retaliate. Evaluate yourself. Very poor, poor, average, good, or excellent. 
Here's the fifth one. I'm a peacemaker and a unifier. He said, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, why is this so important? Because the core focus of Ephesians is this unity we have in Christ. He talked about Jews and Gentiles who were racially divided. When they come to faith, we have this one new spiritual race still respecting our different ethnicities and so forth. But now we are one. And he says it's important to keep that. Now, let me say, if you're a troublemaker, if you are a divider of people, if you were a constant fault finder, you're not doing this very well. Evaluate yourself. Very poor, poor, average, good, or excellent. Here's number six. I have a defined place of service in the body of Christ. The scripture to each one he has given grace, grace for serving, as each part does its work. This place is usually the local church, but it can also be a parachurch Christian organization, or maybe both. One of the cool things that Kimberly, uh, and she, she was on the video, she's uh, leading us in our small group effort, is that we're going to start asking every small group to find some area of ministry outside the church with some of the Christian organizations. It's going to be a really fresh new expectation to be on the team, but very, very valuable. So evaluate yourself. Very poor, poor, average, good, excellent. This is almost like a yes or a no answer, so recognize that. Here's the last one. I'm a good follower, preparing God's people for works of service. Remember those categories, the apostles and pastors and teachers and evangelists? Well, for it to work, not only do leaders need to lead well, but followers need to follow well. Now realize also the scripture says a whole lot about leaders and about the responsibility we have to not abuse our influence. So evaluate yourself. Very poor, poor, average, good, or excellent. Now, I'm going to put them all up on the screen at once, okay? Well, almost at once. Healthy self-concept, measured response, long fuse, respond versus retaliate, peacemaker, defined place of service, and good follower. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to have like 60 seconds of just quiet music, and I'm going to ask you to ask yourself two questions. Which of these am I doing well? Which of these do I really need to work on? So let's just take one minute, some music in the background. I'll give you some time to reflect on that. Well, I went through a little evaluation of myself as well. And I, I think for me, clearly I have a divine place of service. But I think for me, the Holy Spirit just kind of prompted me, I need to work on this a little bit more. Not so much my outward response, but my inner response. So how about you? What was your strongest? Say, Lord, Thank you for that. Whatever your weakest was, here's what I want to encourage you to do next week. Carve out some time. You and the Lord, your Bible, pray about that area. Ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Lord, would you please show me what I need to do by your strength, with your strength, with your power, to make that, to move that from here more over to here. That's kind of my challenge to you, okay? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible letter that your spirit prompted Paul to write, the book of Ephesians. Thank you that we, we have Bible study that we can read, that we have technology where we can share messages through the internet. I thank you, Lord, for the sound and light that enables us to have these live services. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would 
uh, take these truths and embed them deep into our hearts. And may we, this week, maybe all of us, take some time to think about, reflect over, pray about, read scripture over one of these areas that really needs some work that may not reflect that I'm on Jesus' team. Even though I am, it may give a mixed message. So I pray that all of us would take that time to do that. And we pray this in your name. Amen.